You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. Welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. I hope that you all are having an incredible week and an even more incredible Saturday, or whatever day it is that you're listening to this on. Maybe you prefer your true crime on a Saturday, much like today, where you can kick your feet up and just escape in a world of dark and twisted people. Or maybe you prefer your true crime on a random Tuesday afternoon. Either way, I'm just glad you're here. And thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. So I am back from fighting off COVID. Yay! My voice is still kind of touch and go, so I do apologize if I sound a bit weak or soft-spoken today. I'll be honest, I didn't think I was going to get this episode recorded, but I pushed through and made it happen. All right. This week, trial was all over the place. Monday, I was out and didn't watch it, but the rest of the week seemed to be a true roller coaster of events. And I'll be honest, I've stayed pretty behind on watching the trial this week since I've been sick, but I am nothing but determined to keep you all updated on this case. So with that being said, we'll be going over days 9 and 10 from last week and then days 11 through 15 for this week. So without further ado, let's dive in. Starting on day 9, the first witness on the stand was Marcus Zimmerman and he was an attorney for the dependency proceedings and he was representing Maya. She already had an attorney, but they wanted a private counsel as well. Mostly, his testimony was about his meetings with Maya and what it was like to meet with her in the hospital. He went to the hospital and saw her twice, and then he ended up seeing her on the January 6, 2017 court hearing. He didn't give a date for the times that he met with her in the hospital, but both times were within a two-week period. He first met her at the hospital in a waiting room area, and it wasn't a private area where he and Maya could speak really too much about the case without everyone else hearing what was going on. The second time that they met, they were able to meet in her hospital room, but at the time, the hospital had an order to keep Maya's door open at all times because apparently she had fallen out of her wheelchair and had been laying on the floor for hours. I don't know how much I buy that, but that's just me. But because the door was kept open, they weren't able to fully discuss everything because, according to Mr. Zimmerman and to Maya, there was someone, not entirely sure who, 
but there was someone who was standing right outside the door, almost as if they were listening, trying to figure out what was going on. According to Mr. Zimmerman's testimony, Maya said that she wanted out of the hospital. She was in a lot of pain and she just wanted to go home and be with her parents. He also said that Maya blamed Miss Beatty, the social worker, for keeping her at the hospital. He also said that he didn't really know what to expect whenever he met with Maya the first time, but whenever he finally met with her, he said that she was absolutely miserable, that she looked absolutely miserable, and it really left him shaken and surprised as to what the hospital was doing and why they were keeping her away from her family. He also said that he felt like Kathy Beatty was limiting Maya's freedom. And according to Maya's testimony, that is exactly what she was doing. He also said that when he saw her, he went because she was expressing emergency in needing to see him and whenever he would get there it was always something revolving around what Kathy Beatty had done or was talking about doing. He also testified that her emotional well-being was deteriorating and she herself was almost withering away. He said that she would repeat herself a lot in saying that she was hurting or that she was in pain and that she wanted to go home. And every time that she would repeat herself, he was trying to reassure her, saying that he heard her and he understood. And I really liked this because it felt like he was giving her a sense of security, like, hey, I believe you, I hear you, I am going to try everything I can to help you in this. The juries had really good questions for Mr. Zimmerman. One of them being, during your meetings at the hospital, did you observe Kathy Beatty at the meetings? And Mr. Zimmerman said yes, he at least saw her at the first meeting, but he couldn't recall the second. The second question was, did Maya express her religious needs to you during your visits? And Mr. Zimmerman said, yes, she wanted to see her priest and she wanted, he couldn't think of the word, but I think he was talking about a rosary. The next question was, did you observe her being given her religious items, her being Maya? And he said, no, he did not see that. There wasn't too terribly much in cross for Mr. Zimmerman because Mr. Zimmerman is an attorney. I think that they were kind of scared to go up against another attorney, which is understandable. But they did ask him a few questions after the jury questions. And they asked if he was aware of a discussion between Jack and Beata about legally separating so that Jack could get custody of Maya and bring her home. And he said that he knew of that conversation. They had asked him about that, and he did not think that that was a good idea, especially for the sake of Kyle, because they were a whole family unit, 
they were a loving family they were a happy family and separating would just cause more problems for the entirety of the family rather than just for Maya and what was going on and I think that they were just absolutely desperate and were trying to find any possible way to get Maya out of that hospital and back home. The next witness on the stand was Dr. Flores. He is the doctor who administered the ketamine coma in Mexico. He spoke Spanish mostly, and so there was an interpreter who was asking and answering questions on his behalf. And so that made it a little more difficult for me personally to keep up with because I do not speak Spanish. But mostly he went over what we've already heard about with CRPS and how it affects the body. Uh, We've heard about the ketamine and how it works and how it treats and what it does, how effective it can be. And something that he did say that I think was really important was that ketamine doesn't always instantly work for people. Sometimes you can get a dose of ketamine and instantly it makes you feel better. Other times it takes a while and he talked about how there are some people who don't get the full effects of the ketamine for you know six to eight weeks after an infusion or one of the ketamine comas. But then you have other people who wake up from the ketamine coma and there is no pain whatsoever. He also talked about how the effects of the ketamine aren't forever and you're looking at having to have, you know, boosters of the ketamine infusions every so often. And they can typically last anywhere from four to, I think he said, 12 weeks. 12 weeks was around the longest time period that he saw someone who didn't have to have like a booster infusion but three two to three weeks three to four weeks somewhere around there was the like quickest amount of time that he had seen someone who needed to have a booster he was also asked about the risk of death for the ketamine coma the prosecuting attorneys haven't said anything about this but the defense was all about this 50 percent chance of death and i honestly don't know where that's come from because they just kind of brought it up randomly with this doctor so i was kind of confused by that but something that he said was that the ketamine coma it does have risk but so does every other procedure and if you think about it there are people who die during the most common procedures for the most random reasons and doing the ketamine coma a lot of times if someone were to die from it it wouldn't be because of the ketamine itself It would be because of something else that happened, either airways get obstructed or something like that. The jury had a lot of questions for Dr. Flores. 
and I did not write any of them down, so that is my bad, and I do apologize for that. So, we are going to move on to Miss Jacqueline Hinchke. She is an adult and child psychiatrist. In her background, she talked about her schooling and how she is double board certified in both adult and child psychiatry. And she mostly works with children and specifically works with children who have PTSD or depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, eating disorders, the whole nine yards. She really tries to help kids who have these issues. But she said that PTSD can put you at a lot of different risks as you get older. She didn't say what those risks were. I assume that it's more of a mental kind of thing where you are more likely to try to end your own life, but that's just an assumption. She didn't say that. But she did say that because of these risks, it makes it a more dangerous disorder to have. She evaluated Maya, and her opinion was that John Hopkins All Children's Hospital caused Maya to have PTSD and depression, and that Maya will need lifelong psychiatric treatment for, because of what happened at the hospital. Moving on to day 10, they played depositions and as someone who is trying to cover this case as a member of the jury I'm kind of trying to put my mindset into that I'm a juror and not someone who is getting all of the information from the live streams but I don't see how the juries stay awake for these depositions my gosh, they are so boring. There was a lot of humor, though, before the deposition started. Judge Carroll had a lot of difficulty getting the light situated to play the depositions, so he kept turning lights on and off and off and on, and it was just a really nice sense of comedic relief for the courtroom before the most boring of boring depositions was played. The first deposition was from Rebecca Johnson, and she was a counselor at Eagle's Wings Counseling, which is where Maya and her family sought treatment during and after Maya's CRPS diagnosis. And Rebecca Johnson was one of the people who saw her and treated her in the family and basically she said that the family had you know they had come they had sought treatment they were working on you know acceptance of the crps diagnosis and things were looking pretty good there was not really anything major that came from her deposition now, she did say that the family had told her that Beata had taken her own life because she was the one the abuse allegations were against. And the way that it was questioned, or the way that the question was asked to her was by one of the defense attorneys, and it just caused a lot of spark 
I think that if people were really paying attention to it and really listening, then they would realize that whoever asked that question probably was not thinking about their case whenever they asked it because they were like, why is it not helpful for a child to lose their parent to suicide? And Miss Johnson was like, because of the trauma and the grief. And then she was like, or then she was asked, how did you know that Beata ended her own life? She said, because the family told me. So it was just, it, it, it was a mess, not on her part, but on the defense's part, in my opinion. Next up, we have the one, the only, Kathy Beattie. Kathy Beattie is the social worker who worked at John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. She is the one who really was there with Maya the majority of the time. And I just have to say, I loathe this woman. Her demeanor, the way she spoke, the way she carried herself, she has that I'm above everybody else and I know it attitude. I just, I detest her so much. And thankfully on day 10, her deposition was relatively short and it was kind of hard to keep up with because I was still in the throes of the worst part of COVID, but I did pay attention to her body language and she kept spinning back and forth side to side in her chair she was very defensive. She was checking her cell phone and her speech was kind of all over the place. Like she knew she was trying to keep up with her own lies, but she couldn't remember what all of the lies were. She had a lot of grooming gestures. She was fixing her hair. She was patting herself or like, you know, trying to uh, rub something off of her shirt or picking at her clothes or something like that she rolled her eyes a lot and just acted like the whole deposition was a joke and I don't know just her entire body language was so off-putting to me she came from a very defensive place and you could tell that from the beginning you could tell that she was in this like I did nothing wrong I'm not going to admit that I did anything wrong and I am going to make you look stupid for even asking if I did anything wrong or making it seem like I did anything wrong. It's like she completely refused to take responsibility for anything and I get to a degree that, you know, you want to defend yourself if you think your actions are legit. But whenever you have something like this, even if you think that you did nothing wrong, you don't have to be so defensive about it. I mean, come on. Something that she did say was that Maya would only complain of pain when Beata was there or when she was asked if she had pain. And I'm like, if you're in pain, you're going to say that you're in pain when you're asked if you're in pain. And if you're in pain, you're going to want to tell your mother if you're hurting. 
because your mother is the one who's supposed to make it better. And it just, it infuriated me. It absolutely infuriated me watching this woman and knowing that she was acting like this. I think that if she would have acted differently, it wouldn't have been as bad. But my goodness, she was just awful. Something that Maya had said was that Kathy Beattie was sitting with her during court and putting her hands on her and holding her and all that kind of stuff. But Kathy Beattie said that she wasn't sitting with Maya during court, even though Maya said that she was sitting next to her. She's just so, ugh, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it to her, but yeah. She said that when Maya met with Mr. Zimmerman, her attorney, that the door to her room was left open at all times, including during this meeting, in case Maya fell out of her wheelchair, as if the attorney wouldn't help her if she fell or get someone to help if she fell. She said that, quote, we were asked to take pictures, unquote, of Maya by risk management. She didn't get any permission from the family or anyone other than risk management to take these pictures. There was no real reason given other than what risk management said to do. This order was not coming from uh, DCF. It was a direct order from John, Ch John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. They did not call the parents for permission. Maya did not want her pictures taken, but they forced her to or to take these pictures. And we will hear more about these pictures later on. So after this deposition was over, all of, there were all of these arguments and everything outside of the presence of the jury. And I am really trying not to cover the arguments, but if you guys want me to cover the arguments between witnesses or outside of the presence of the jury, let me know. You can hit me up on Twitter or the Facebook page and I will start trying to cover the arguments as well. Day 11 started out with Jack being back on the stand. He was asked by Mr. Anderson about the photos taken of Maya by Kathy Beattie and if he or Beata gave any sort of permission for that. Jack said, no, absolutely not. He said that there was no consent forms that they signed for this and that there was also none that he was aware of any consent to transfer Maya into foster care, which he learned was being talked about through Maya, not by the court, not by Kathy Beattie. He learned that there was talk about moving Maya into foster care by Maya. We also learned that the hospital staff had a nickname for Maya, Ketamine Girl. They called her ketamine girl. They claimed it was a euphemism so that they wouldn't use her name over text and emails, but there are a thousand different ways to refer to her other than ketamine girl. And I don't know, that just, that really upset me that that 
really upset me. But we also learned that according to Jack, and I believe that this was discussed in the Netflix documentary, Kathy Beattie had another situation similar to this where a mother committed suicide after being accused of abusing her child by Munchausen by proxy. Next up on the stand was Maya. And let me just say, Maya's demeanor is so sweet. If you haven't seen the documentary, then let me tell you, this girl is stunning. You can absolutely tell that her mother was Polish. Like, Maya has the same hair color, she is blonde, she has pale skin. Even living in Florida, she looks like she could be a snow princess or something. I kind of imagined her in like an ice blue Elsa kind of dress with a fur coat and being Polish royalty. I mean, she is just, she's beautiful and she has the most delicate features. She truly, genuinely looks like some sort of princess. You can tell though that she has been through so much. Her eyes. While you can see the physical pain she's in, you can also see the demons that she's faced in the last several years. It's almost as if she has this dark cloud hanging over her, and I just imagine that if all this wouldn't have happened to her, if she hadn't been kept at John Hopkins, if her mother hadn't committed suicide, that even in her physical pain, she would just shine. But we're going to move on to Maya's testimony now. And basically, it was just a rundown of her life, where she was born, where she grew up, what school was like, what home life was like, uh, what it was like going to church. They went to mass every Sunday, but then they also went to Polish school before leaving Chicago. And apparently Chicago is a very popular place for Polish people. And I didn't know that. I thought that was really interesting. Um, Maya did ballet and gymnastics. She played piano and she was a very active kid. And even up until the CRPS appeared. But even before then, she said that she had a really high pain tolerance. She told a story about how she was riding her bike one day when she was younger and she fell off of her bike and she actually broke her arm when she fell. But she didn't tell her parents because it wasn't really hurting all that bad. And it wasn't until Jack and Beata noticed that she was kind of holding it funny that they took her to the hospital. And she said that her arm was sore, but it was nothing really out of the ordinary. And lo and behold, it was broken and had been for about three days. But this was a really good point to make because it showed that even before her CRPS, her pain tolerance was high. And we've heard several doctors testify that to CRP CRPS patients, that something that may be a 10 on the pain scale without CRPS is like a 4 or 5 to someone with it. 
She was asked about her life after her CRPS diagnosis and the therapy she tried, how things changed with the ketamine treatments, and ultimately what happened when she was taken into the custody of DCF and kept at John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. She had improved a lot with the ketamine and therapies and was able to do a lot of stuff on her own. She was trying to get out of her wheelchair and building a lot of upper body strength. She was able to hold herself up by her arms on a walker and she was able to use her core to really help stabilize herself and move around. She only really needed her wheelchair if she was going to be going across the house or if the floor was too uncomfortable for her to crawl on. And crawling was one of her favorite ways to get around because she could do it herself. And of course, anytime she went outside or went somewhere outside of the home, she would be in her wheelchair. But after being admitted to John Hopkins, everything changed. Her pain began to return. She began losing muscle mass because she wasn't able to exercise or do nearly as much physical therapy. And by the time she was finally able to leave the hospital 97 days later, she couldn't hold herself upright when trying to sit up. And she couldn't take the cap off of a water bottle. She talked about being held in the MRI room, room, otherwise known as the observation room, where they recorded her without knowing for 42 hours. And in this room... They were really trying to prove that Maya was not actually sick, that she wasn't actually in pain. And so one of the ways that they did this was they put one of the portable toilets a little outside of reach for Maya. And they were trying to see if she would get up and go to the bathroom if she needed to go. And she was not able to do that. And so she ended up using the bathroom on herself more than once because of it. She had no privacy, even when she was in a normal room. There was no curtains that she could close to change clothes, and the door had to be kept open at all times so they could keep an eye on her to make sure she didn't fall out of her chair. She wasn't allowed to play with other kids on the floor. She had limited contact with her family, and all of the phone calls were monitored by Kathy Beatty. I really could go on and on about all Maya said during her testimony, but her testimony took up almost the entire day, and it was so impactful and so hard to listen to just simply because of how awful things were for her at john hopkins that poor girl i i feel so horrible for her but i am going to go ahead and wrap up on her testimony and i will link her testimony in the show notes because i think that everyone may really want to see that Day 12 started off with Dr. Timothy Brewerton, a quadruple board certified doctor. He is certified in general child forensic and addiction psychology. That's pretty impressive if you ask me. 
Dr. Brewerton did a lot of testing on the entire Kowalski family, ranging from anxiety and depression, PTSD, ADHD, and other mood disorders. And he did so in a way that allowed for signs of lying on the test. Each test would ask the same questions, just in a different way. So if one answer was yes to feeling a certain way on one test and no to feeling the same way on another test, but asked a different way, it would show signs of inconsistency. Maya, Kyle, and Jack's tests were all conclusive in their answers, showing him that this family had serious depression and mood disorders, as well as PTSD and something called complicated bereavement from Beata's death. And the complicated bereavement, I thought, was really interesting to hear about because it's more than just grief. It is something that you really don't know how to get through, and it was just really impactful hearing about that. Dr. Brewerton said two specific things that really stood out to me and gave me that mic drop moment. The first one being, quote, when people are in that kind of pain, referring to Maya's CRPS, it leads to psychological reactions, understandably. I mean, it's not rocket science. Then he said, quote, this perception that the body and the mind are separate, it's a myth. We're all one organism, end quote. He then went on to talk about how there are truly... There, there truly is a body-mind connection, and when it comes to mental disorders and issues, it can usually stem from a physical place, and on the other side of that coin, the mental disorders can cause physical problems. He went on to talk about how these things affect her to this day and will continue to affect her as she grows up. She already has an avoidance of things like doctors and medical professionals, but unless she gets help, and she wants help, but she's afraid to get help, these avoidances and these problems are only going to get worse. He said that Maya needs psychotherapy once or twice a week with antidepressants indefinitely. He said that she is going to need it as long as she needs it. Next on the stand was Dr. Kirkpatrick one of Maya's CRPS doctors. Okay, Dr. K gave me mad scientist vibes. I mean, the way he talked, the way he acted, he was crazy. I've seen a lot of people who have absolutely loved him, but I had a really hard time following his testimony just because of how uh, erratic he was. He would go on all these tangents about all of these different things, and it was just, I really don't know how to explain it. But he mostly testified to CRPS and how it's treated, like doctors we've heard before. He talked about ketamine and how it works, like doctors we've heard before. And he did say that he talked to John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. They called him wanting Maya's you know, history and medical records and everything and said that, you know, they asked him if they thought that Beata was abusing Maya by Munchausen by proxy and he said that there was no reason to suspect that 
from Beata that she was just a loving mother who knew what worked for her child. I will also link his testimony in the show notes because I think that a lot of people are also going to want to see it and I just can't cover what all he said. He was on the stand for nearly five hours, I think, and it was just so crazy. And I was still in the throes of COVID, so I wasn't able to keep up with it as fully as I wanted to. Day 13 held even more depositions. Oh my goodness. I do not like the depositions, you guys. I really don't. So, this was Dr. Laura Voss. In her deposition, she pronounced it Vos, but I've never heard it pronounced that way. But that's neither here nor there. But she is a doctor of osteopathy. Osteopathy? I really don't know what that is. But she was on the hospital ethics committee and was part of Maya's care team. She is actually the one who came up with the name Ketamine Girl for Maya. She was asked if she ever referred to Maya as Ketamine Girl to her face, and her response was literally like, no. And then she was asked if she'd done so to Beata, and she said no. And then there were text messages between her and another medical staff person predicting Beata's death or not predicting Beata's death but she had sent a text message a text message to someone saying well I guess my prediction was right after hearing of Beata's passing when she was asked about this quote-unquote prediction she said that she wasn't really predicting it but she had heard of a case before in her residency of a mother who was accused of Munchausen by proxy who ended up committing suicide. And I can't help but wonder if Kathy Beattie was the social worker because Kathy Beattie apparently had another person, another family in the same situation. I don't know if it's likely. I don't know if it's possible, but I do wonder if it was the same event. But mostly her whole deposition was about the text messages between herself and other medical staff members referring to Maya as Ketamine Girl and talking about Beata's death. Next on the stand was Dr. Corcoran. And he was testifying to the procedures and policies of John Hopkins All Children's Hospital. So... I really can't say too much about this guy. His testimony wasn't phenomenal to me, but he did explain in great detail the ways the policies and procedures with Maya were violated and not done correctly. I know I said earlier that I'm not going to go into the arguments of this case, but this one I had to. Defense fought hard before he took the stand to get his testimony stricken, struck, I'm not sure which one is the right word to use there, but they argued for probably 30 to 45 minutes and it was just, they were trying everything they knew to get this witness not to take the stand. 
there were a lot of things in his testimony. There was a lot of evidence that he was going to be testifying to and about that I really think that John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, did not want the jury to see. A lot of that being notes about what was happening behind the scenes. And one of the things that he really testified to was the lack of care that Maya got and why it was so wrong the way they treated her. His whole testimony was talking about how to provide care for patients and he said that Johns Hopkins had a system-wide failure in Maya's care that may lead to others falling through the cracks of the same system. He was able to testify about messages, text messages, between Dr. Sally Smith and Dr. Dees saying that Maya couldn't keep up the charade of being sick 24-7 and that she was going to take pictures of her, quote, affected areas, unquote, of her legs for court. The other doctor in question, Dr. Dees, asked if they could record her more for court purposes. So this really showed that the hospital was trying to catch her in an act and that they were planning things, that they were not doing what was in Maya's best interest. These whole, that like this whole text message exchange was just totally awful. I mean, it, it truly was. But you could see from the documents that were shown why defense did not want this man to testify. It was just, it was really, really, really bad for defense. And I'm not saying that this may have caught, like, cost them their case, but I think that unless they can come in and prove a whole lot of stuff whenever it's their turn to take the lead on things, I don't think that they have much of a chance of winning. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think that despite the rough and rocky start that the plaintiffs had in the beginning, I think that they have built a pretty solid, well-done case. But Dr. Corcoran was a, a really good witness for the policies and procedures and the way that things should have been handled with Maya and how they were not. So now we're going to move on to day 14. Day 14 started with Jessica Blackrick and she was the guardian at Lydum while Maya was in the custody of DCF. She was supposed to supervise the phone calls between Maya and Beata. So basically what she would do is she would call the hospital and then the hospital would send her through to Maya's room, I guess, or maybe Miss Beatty's cell phone and then they would have like a three-way call, I guess, between the guardian at Lydum, whoever's phone they were on, and then Beata. And 
all that the guardian at Lydum was supposed to do was listen. She wasn't there to, you know, determine which way the conversation would go or anything like that. She was there as a neutral party to just observe the conversations. And she said that there were no limitations to how many and how often phone calls could be had between Maya and Beata. Whereas Miss Beattie was saying that they could only talk this often and for this long. And she was also very, very adamant about the things that they could and could not talk about. Miss Blackrick was also the one who told Maya that she was going to be kept and sheltered at Johns Hopkins and had to explain to her why she was being kept there. But mostly her testimony was just about the phone calls and how they were supposed to go and uh, there was really no reason for Miss Beattie to be on those phone calls and yet she was and she didn't really understand why they were having her on these phone calls. It was a little bit confusing to her. But now we are going to move on to yet another deposition by Dr. Sally Smith. Dr. Smith was one of the leading physicians who was treating Maya while she was being kept at Johns Hopkins. She was the one that talked to Dr. Kirkpatrick and several other of Maya's doctors. They, all of the doctors that she spoke with said that Maya had CRPS and that it was not Munchausen by proxy. And yet she still decided to put in a call about the potential Munchausen by proxy. And I think that was very telling of what this hospital was like. She claimed that she didn't give direct orders to Maya's care. She was just talking to the other physicians about how to treat her, but she kind of caught herself up in her own lies, I guess, because she said that some of the stuff, like taking Maya off of all of her medications, wasn't a recommendation. It was just a statement, more like a question. But then later on, she said that she recommended that they take Maya off all of her medications. So she kind of tripped up on herself a little bit. And I think that that was also very telling on her behalf that she is trying to cover up something, that something being the way that Maya was treated and the way that her care was handled. The way that she explained how things work at the hospital really made me think that they are looking for child abuse above a health issue or any kind of diagnosis. It really made me think that their whole purpose was a place where an abused child could come in and get help without having to have someone wait around and try to find signs of abuse. But 
if that were the case, then they would be looking at every child like they were abuse victims. And Maya was not a child of abuse. She was not suffering from abuse at the hands of Beata or Jack. And I think that they were just genuinely looking for something. She said that she was part of the child protection team at Johns Hopkins, which basically is a team of people who work together to try to help child abuse victims. And she said that she explained to Beata and Jack exactly who she was and exactly what she was doing, exactly what was going to happen, and went into great detail about all of that. Now, she is no longer employed by Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, which I think is a very good thing. And I believe I said this, but just in case... She had talked to Dr. Kirkpatrick, and Dr. Kirkpatrick told her not to raise the question of Munchausen by proxy because that was not an issue. That was not something that was going on with the Kowalski family. But Sally Smith was saying that she wouldn't be doing her job if she didn't still look for it when she suspected it. And... I can kind of understand where she's coming from with that, but at the same time, if you have more than one other doctor who has seen this child many times and they are telling you, hey, listen, this is not Munchausen by proxy, Maya has CRPS, this is the treatment that she is getting, this is what works for her, it's not the mother abusing the child then I think that maybe you should listen to that. Next, we had an in-court read deposition. Usually, depositions are recorded, but for some reason, two of these depositions were not. And so, the plaintiffs kind of acted out, if you will, the depositions for Dr. Newberger. This was very interesting. It was almost like whenever you, if you've ever been in a play of sorts or you've watched, you know, table reads of your favorite movie or shows or whatever, that's what it reminded me of was a table read of a script. It was very boring, like all the other depositions. But Dr. Newberger did say a lot of really interesting things. He was, is a national consultant and he consults on unique medical cases. He hadn't practiced medicine in over 10 years. He hadn't worked in a hospital or anything like that, but he was still very educated in diagnosis and in complex cases, including CRPS. He also said that there was a doctor draft. He was not intending to go into 
the specialty that he was in, which I believe was pediatrics. But he did say that in his graduating class at medical school in 1966, during the Vietnam War, there was a doctor shortage. And so they had a doctor draft where all male graduates of the class of 1966 had to report to their draft board to choose an armed force to serve in as a doctor. And I thought that that was just a really interesting piece of information, so I thought that I would share it with you. If you have anything to add on that, let me know, because I had never heard of that before. He talked about how CRPS is a diagnostic, a, a diagnostic, a diagnostic waste basket, meaning that all kinds of things are thrown into it, but the real culprit being the actual CRPS is really hard to find. He said that the standard of care for Maya was violated, that Dr. Sally Smith was cruel to Maya, that she absolutely violated the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm, said, and said that that was just completely thrown out the window. He said that the attending physician reporting to Dr. Smith trying to catch her faking was going beyond her role as a doctor and a caregiver. She was also advocating for the removal of Maya's central port, which is where she got her ketamine infusions when she needed a booster. And to have that removed would have meant that she wasn't going to be able to get these ketamine boosters anymore. And she deceived Beata by not making it known what her role was, which is a really bad thing. So basically, from these depositions from Dr. Newberger, he was saying that the standard of care was just heavily violated whenever you have a unique diagnosis like CRPS, you cannot not treat it as it is such a complex diagnosis and it is such a rare diagnosis especially in a child so that was very I mean we'd heard that before but it was interesting to hear his take on the lack of care that Maya received a really funny note that happened after this because the plaintiffs were reading the deposition. They went on a break and after the break the jury came back into the courtroom and the judge had a note on his stand saying that next time the plaintiffs are to read a deposition like that they need to use different accents and voices and that a wig may be in order to spruce things up a little bit. It was absolutely hilarious 
and I have loved seeing the judge and his interactions not only with the lawyers and the witnesses but especially with the jury. He has built such a good rapport with them and I think that it is just a really good indicator of how this judge is and what he's like and I really like Judge Carroll. His hair still bothers me but I like him as a judge. After these in-court read depositions, after the break, after the funny little acting note left on the judge's bench, they went into the testimonies from the Kowalski family about damages. And these were not like the monetary damages or anything like that. These were the human damages, meaning the emotional toll it has taken on them, what has transpired since transpired, transpired since Beata's death, and after Maya being in the hospital and everything. And I got really, really, really emotional watching and listening to all of their testimonies well on day 14 it was just Kyle and Jack and then Maya was finished up hers on day 15 so Kyle was up first and you can just tell that he is sad and depressed he said, quote, I was witnessing the whole family fall apart and I was devastated, end quote. And my heart just broke listening to that. He went on to talk about life without his mom. He said, quote, it's impossible to escape the bad, quote. And again, I got super emotional with that, but he got really emotional about ask he was asked uh, how it has affected him not being able to continue to speak Polish and that was really hard on him Beata was teaching him and Maya both how to speak Polish and since she is gone she was really the only family member on her side who could speak both English and Polish and so they don't get to speak the Polish language like they did. They don't get to engage in that like they used to. And because of that, they don't have a lot of communications with Beata's side of the family because of the language barrier. They've tried to continue to learn it. They've tried to continue to pick it up and keep it up. But for Kyle, it's just really hard for him. He also said that used to, he was pretty happy, pretty easygoing. Now he just stays down almost all the time. And he will just get really super angry about things, little things, stupid things, for really absolutely no reason that he can think of other than just the emotional toll that he's taken. He doesn't go out. Everything he does is online, school shopping, food, or school shopping, school. He and the family, they don't have Beata's cooking anymore. And she would cook 
the traditional Polish foods. He said that he had really lost his faith after all of this because he prayed and prayed and prayed while Maya was in the hospital that she would come home and they'd be able to be together again. And then instead of her coming home and the whole family being together again, his mom took her life. He said that his mom went above and beyond to make sure we were healthy. He said that he will spiral thinking about his mom and what happened with her and that the thoughts of it consume him and they just kind of feed off each other and it's a vicious cycle that he cannot get out of. He says he stresses and worries relentlessly about his dad. If something were to happen to his dad, he didn't he doesn't know what he and Maya would do. And he feels incomplete without Beata being in his life. He said that he will never be able to forget what happened and doesn't know how he's gonna be able to move on from it. Jack was back on the stand next. And he started off saying that, you know, the outside appearances aren't what they seem. He said that their house has a nice, nicely cut front yard. The outside of the house is spotless and pretty, but on the inside, it's a total disaster. Not that the house is a mess and destroyed or anything like that, but indicating that their lives inside that house are a disaster. He was asked why the why the family decided to stay in the house and he said that one of his first thoughts after getting Maya home was to move, to sell the house, to leave. But he said, if I leave, I take away the only thing they have left, they being the kids, their friends. And he said that the love and the support that they've gotten from their community, from their neighbors, it has been incredible and he doesn't want to leave that behind, but the whole family wants to be out of that house. They have tried everything they can to make it still feel like home and they just can't do it. It's not what it was before. He said that trying to do both roles of both mom and dad is impossible and that there's just a void without Beata there. He said that Beata cooked and she cooked healthy. And he said the kids still have never had a fast food burger. Like that is how much Beata cooked and how healthy she was. Jack told a story about how after getting out of Johns Hopkins and being back home, Maya and Kyle were outside with a couple of the neighbor kids and they were playing football and Maya tried to catch the football and it broke her finger and Jack's first thought was what do I do in the sense of what do I do legally he said that he was rationalizing you know he has security cameras that were recording so he'd be able to show the court that it was a football that broke Maya's finger. He 
was asking himself, do I need to call my lawyer before I take her to the hospital? What do I need to do? And then the only reason that Maya even agreed to go to the hospital was because she had an aunt that worked at a specific hospital and she knew that she could trust her aunt to advocate for her and keep her and make sure that she was okay. And that's the only reason why she was able to rationalize going to the hospital for her finger. He did say that he has been on a couple of dates here and there, but it wouldn't be appropriate for him to have any kind of real relationship with anyone while this trial is going on. And even though he has considered dating seriously, he will never ever be able to replace Beata. And I think that that is very sad and also very admirable because you can tell that he loved her so, so much. And the loss of her in his life as his wife is just tragic. Because this case isn't just about what happened to Maya at the hospital. It's about what happened to the Kowalskis as a whole because of Maya being in the hospital and that leading to Beata's suicide. Jack said that he's angry that Beata committed suicide. He's angry at her. He's angry at the world. He's angry at the hospital. And that is completely understandable. That's completely valid. And I totally understand where he's coming from with that. But I think that it's also really important to know that even though he's angry that she took her own life, he understands why she did it. She felt like she had no other options and that it was the only way to get Maya back home. We're going to go ahead and move on to day 15 because I can feel that my voice is getting a little bit weaker and a little bit more strained. So on day 15, Maya took the stand and talked about the human damages from losing her mother. Her testimony was really, really hard for me to get through. It was so emotional. She broke down several times and cried and it was just heartbreaking. But what she really talked about was she was afraid to talk about her CRPS or her symptoms. She can handle the going to like the dermatologist and the dentist because they won't take her away from her dad, but she can't handle going to the, a doctor's office or a hospital because that fear of being taken away, being taken back into custody of the hospital, it, it terrifies her. She said that she can't sleep at night and that she doesn't have nightmares but memories of being at Johns Hopkins and the trauma of what happened to her and the pain that she feels physically and emotionally just that it, it it just absolutely destroys her she is terrified to even think about doing ketamine treatments even though they worked fairly well for her because what if she gets a ketamine treatment and then she gets taken away from her family 
she was asked about doing therapy and everything and she said she wants to get help she knows that she needs the therapy she knows that she needs the help but she's terrified to talk to someone because whenever she was in the hospital dr lewis a psychotherapist was writing down things in her chart that she was not saying he lied about the things that she had told him she said that there were so many things that reminded her of her mom she herself is a reminder of her mother she looks so much like yada and like i said earlier she's blonde she has the same hair color and so even looking in the mirror sometimes is hard for her because she is her own reminder of her mother and that just crushed me because so many girls look in the mirror and they see their mom and they are so thrilled because they get to look like their mom and maya i'm sure that to a degree she loves that she has some of the features of her mother's but at the same time it is just soul crushing because whenever she looks in the mirror she sees her mom and she has to relive everything that she went through trying to just live life without her mother knowing that basically she has her mother's face and that's hard that's i imagine that that is incredibly hard all right my voice is getting a little bit worse and my throat is starting to feel the effects of it so i'm just gonna kind of speed through these last couple of witnesses but christy kirby was up next and she was an economist and basically she was there to testify to the monetary value that Beata added to the family with her job and without it and what the potential difference would be if Beata hadn't taken her life and if all of this wouldn't have happened. She also was talking about the money that Maya would make as someone with PTSD and depression and anxiety and CRSP versus if she didn't have those things and it was honestly really boring for me but I'm sure that other people would have really enjoyed it but math and numbers just are not my thing. 